Okay, let's open with a word of prayer. Our Father, we thankful again for the canon of Scripture that was given by the Holy Spirit to inscripturate and permanently preserve revelation that we may, in our time, centuries later, read the text and have the Holy Spirit illuminate our hearts to its content that we may come to know you in a better and deeper way. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, tonight we're going to finish, hopefully, the um, chapter on the emergence of the church. And we are doing that by going through the third person of the Trinity, not the third person in the sense of the order, but we've gone from the Holy Spirit's work to the Son's work to the Father's work. And so we're on the work of the Father. And the way to think of this Trinitarianly, if I can use that as an adverb, is to think of the Father as the speaker, the Son as the message, and the Holy Spirit as the results of that message. So when you think of the works of the Father, think of these six works as the causes. These are causes of the plan. Think of the six works of the Son as the content of God's plan. And think of the uh, work of the Holy Spirit as the uh, results. And um, so, again, to review, if we order the Trinity now in the sequence that it should be, from Father to Son to the Spirit. We've talked about the works of the Holy Spirit, spiritual gifts, plus the intercession, the interceding ministry of the, of the Holy Spirit. Uh, then we went to the Son and we said that He provided impute righteousness that's imputed to us. He died and He rose uh, from the dead. He provided eternal life and he, as a, he, he does the priestly ministry. Um, he's the guy who is the head of the church. He is the priest who makes intercession. All these things that he does are the center of New Testament revelation. These are too, but these actually are the result of that. Uh, for example, the... Uh, regeneration ministry of the Holy Spirit, there would be nothing to regenerate if it were not for the existence of eternal life. So eternal life actually becomes the thing that um, is manifested in regeneration. The Holy Spirit manifests that eternal life. Um, you have Christ's intercession which takes that, that righteousness and continues to apply it before the throne of grace, it's the priestly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ takes his cross work and the atonement for sin and he applies it to the Christian, um, to the Christian before God. When the Father in the throne room, remember, Satan is the accuser of the brethren and the Lord Jesus Christ takes the result, he doesn't re-sacrifice himself. It is a once and for all sacrifice. So this is where Protestantism and Roman Catholicism differ here in that they don't see the Lord Jesus as continuing uh, a sacrifice in the Mass over and over and over and over again. 
What Jesus does do, though, is he continues to apply it to defend the legal ground of why God can carry on a personal relationship with believers. And, of course, then the sixth work of the Lord Jesus Christ is that he judges. All judgment has been, uh, both for unbelievers and believers, all judgment has been passed to him because he is a peer. This is judgment by peer. It's not the Father is not the one who judges. The Holy Spirit is not the one who judges. It's the Son to whom all judgment has been given. That's the Gospel of John. And so it's the Son who does this because the Son can answer objections to the judgment. Example, being that, well, uh, God, you know, you're not going to have to... It's easy for you to sit there and judge me. You, you've never been a human being. You've never walked around the earth. You've never faced temptation. You've never done this. You've never done that. And so really, I mean, while you have the power to judge uh, me, it's not really a fair judgment because I don't, I'm not being judged by someone who is my peer. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ is the peer because he is God-made man. That's what the incarnation is all about. So he becomes the, the, the one who judges. Now, tonight, we're going through the works of the Father. And these are all in the area of causation. They're primarily things that the Father causes to come about. The means involved in these acts aren't really in view. It's the cause. And that's why these, these acts are very controversial sometimes because people forget that the... Let's turn to Romans 8, by the way. Let's go back to Romans 8, 20, 28, 29, 30. Um, these works the Father does are actually the things that cause the rest of the work. So people get fixed on these, these things, these words about what God the Father does and they so concentrate on, on the, the narrow work, they forget it's the cause of something. Um, and I want to point out, since we are dealing with cause again, we want to review the basic um, difference between paganism and biblical faith and we've seen this diagram a number of times, but tonight there's another feature to it that you, you've seen before, but I want to um, recall it. <clears throat> this chart that we show so frequently gives the essence of the difference between the truth of divine revelation and the speculation of man in history. And the, the uh, truth... The, the, the record or the deposit of truth, as theologians call it, that body of verbal revelation God has given to history, comes down and is observable in these areas throughout history. Today, they're observable in what we call fundamentalism inside Christianity. They're observable in the Bible. And that's not to say, by the way, that outside fundamentalism they're not. It's just that what's happened theologically, if you know church history for the last... 60 years or so, um, the confessions, the great historic creeds of the denominations. I mean, all the major denominations going back have very strong creeds, actually. But, but nobody in, but very few, the people in them adhere to them. I come out of a denomination that has a very good creed, very 
straight Reformed creed, you can't find one person in the congregation that even read it, leave alone, follows it. So all that deposit of truth is kind of just shocked. So what we're saying here is that down through history, we've had ancient monotheism, which was the survival of the Noahic Bible up through the time of Abraham and later on in certain isolated tribes. Um, the book on that is um, Eternity in Their Hearts by Paul Richardson. Uh, then you have ancient Israel as a witness to the truth, and you have the Bible. And the essence of it is that the creator-creature distinction is an absolute one. And it's failure to understand the creator-creature distinction that gets all the intellectual tools screwed up on down the line. I'm going to review that again because we're getting into foreknowledge, we're getting into predestination, and these things become big issues, and I'm convinced that half the issue isn't an issue. It becomes an issue because we're sloppy in how we think about them. And then we get in trouble. So, the creator-creature distinction is absolutely necessary to understand anything. If you're not solid on the creator-creature distinction, you cannot intellectually handle truths of foreknowledge and predestination. Because what you do, uh, and we all have this tendency, is to set up some idea, whether it's foreknowledge, predestination, or election, and we think of it as though it's something that's true of both God and man in the same way. And it's not. The creator-creature distinction holds. They, the creator's sovereignty is not the same as human choice. It's not like they're opposed to one another. They're two different things. One is that quality of a creator, and the other is a quality of the creature. There's correspondence between them. There are certain analogies, but there are also disanalogies. So that's why I've emphasized that tonight, the creator-creature distinction. And then we come down to the last thing, which is implicated tonight, and that is that at the bottom, the biblical view holds to personal responsibility. And that comes about because there's a personal, sovereign God over all. If there wasn't a personal, sovereign God, there'd be no such thing as responsibility. That's why I always have to laugh at the... And all the skeptics, and particularly, you get some of these real arrogant intellectuals who want to attack the gospel. They're usually found in college classrooms where they live off the tuition of the college students' parents and then proceed to abuse, intellectually abuse the kids while they're in class. These guys and gals that do this do not seem to ever get it that you can't get human rights that they're always talking about you can't get human rights in a universe where there's no God. And you go back to the Declaration of Independence of this country, and all Americans ought to know this one. What is one of the most famous sentences in our Declaration of Independence? All men are created by their, are endowed by their Creator with what? Unalienable rights. Unalienable rights. Not alienable, but unalienable. Now, why do you suppose they put that sentence in there? Because if the state is the true source of rights, if the community, by a 51% vote, is the real source of rights, that's an alienable right. What Whoever gives the right can take it away. This is why we're seeing our rights today taken away, left and right, by the idea that the state has all power. So the state wages war against the family. The state wages war sometimes unintentionally, but it does. It's like a 600-pound gorilla going after a, you know, a five-pound baby. 
And, and that happens because there's no discipline, there's no higher control, there's no ultimate responsibility. So you come over here to the unbelieving side and the creator-creature distinction is denied. For centuries it's denied. All paganism has the feature that God and man and animals are only gradations of this being, existence. And the result of that, bottom line is, that we have an impersonal fate or chance that's running the show furthest back. And I mentioned last time you can go to uh, movies like um, 2001 where Kubrick uh, and Clark really knew what they were doing. And that's why in that movie you'll see the, the flipping of the tablet in the front end of the film and you'll see it at the end. And it's, it's, it's in ancient um, mythologies they spoke of the tablet of destiny. And, and, and Clark knows what he's doing. Arthur C. Clark was a very good writer. And there you see the Tablet of Destiny flipping over, and he, he designed it, Kubrick, when he filmed it, he designed it like the classic picture we all have of the Ten Commandments. But the problem is, there's no person to write it. There's no person there. It's just a cold stone tablet. And that's the problem. Without God, you have impersonal fate and chance. And what that does... And this is something that we as Christians need to understand. There is an agenda going on. Don't buy into this idea that, that ideas are morally neutral. That there's no hidden agenda going on behind the scenes. There's a hidden agenda. And if you look at this diagram, you can see that the agenda actually results in something very important. It produces an environment in which I can become my, I can declare myself a victim. I don't have to accept personal responsibility for what I do and where I am. In the, on the right side of that chart, what you've got is you've rendered the universe safe for sinners. That's the agenda. So all the intellectual hoopla ultimately has a spiritual foundation of manufacturing and reinventing a view of the world, a view of the universe that keeps the sinner safe from an intervening God to whom they are responsible. So, all that by way of introduction because now we go to Romans 8 and we get into the hard stuff because this is, deals with causation. And Romans 8 is a good place to, to look at it because it's verse 28 and verse 28 is, all Christians know this, um, that all things work together for good, and we like that promise. Uh, all things work together um, for good to those who love God, to those that are the called according to his purpose. Now maybe, as you've read this before, you didn't notice the verb in the last clause. But if you look at that text, and you look at that last clause, what is the verb? The verb is call. And notice the tense. It says, those who are called. So if you have a passive voice, and a past tense, and a passive voice, the subject receives the action. So the subject of the verb in the last clause is receiving the action. And so it says that those who are called according to his purpose. Now it's that clause that leads Paul now into the next two verses by way of explanation. 
Paul likes to do this. If you, you, if you want to sometimes see how he works, you can, get a, you can get a grasp of how Paul's mind works by taking a big piece of sheet of paper, a legal-sized piece of paper, and start diagramming one of his sentences. And you'll see that he flits. He'll start out and he'll plop some big idea out there, and then he comes back in and he starts going through all this ifs and qualifications and so forth, and he backs it up. And here's a case where he does that. If you see where he, he sets out that, that clause, the first part of the clause we like. We know that God caused all things to work together for good to those that love God. But then he qualifies those to whom all things work together for good. All things do not work together for good for all men. This is not a universalist verse. It's a verse that is limited to a subset of the human race. And it says, all things work together for good to those who have been called or who are called according to his purpose. So the action of the verb falls back or the, the act falls back on the subject and the subject of this action now are those who are called. So those who understood are called. So this is the verb it's passive and the action goes back to the subject those who have been called then he qualifies the calling the calling is not a chance thing the calling is not something that involves human agency here the calling is according to his purpose now let's look at that one for a minute who are called according to his purpose now, it doesn't say according to their purpose. It doesn't say according to the committee's purpose. It doesn't say that, that God, had, God and his consultants. It says his purpose. And this pronoun, his, is singular or is it plural? Singular. God's purpose. No one else's purpose. It's God's purpose alone his final purpose. So he's made some assertions here that really make us start to think and so that's why in verse 29 and 30 he now expands that. What is this purpose? We're called according to his purpose. That's, but tell us more about the purpose, Paul. So he does. And in verse 29 he starts out with four to explain what's going to happen. Let me explain it, he says. Whom he foreknew, he also predestinated. Now, the first clause. Whom he foreknew. Foreknowing is active voice, but the whom is a pronoun in the accusative. It's not who, it's whom he foreknew. And of course, this is a it's in an accusative or objective uh, tense. So the verb again is acting on the direct object of the, of the verb. He foreknows whom he foreknows. He foreknows whom. So again, notice the direction of the action of these verbs. Okay, we want to keep watching the verbs and their, uh, their, their voice and their, how they point. Whom he foreknew he also predestined 
to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestined, again, the accusative pronoun, whom he predestined, those he called, or these he called, and that's, again, it's the accusative, it receives the action of the calling, and whom, again, whom is the accusative pronoun, relative pronoun, whom he called, so again, object of the verb call, he also justified, and whom he justified, he also glorified. So we have five actions listed here in this text. Foreknowing, predestinating, calling, uh, justifying, and glorifying. And you'll notice that they all hang together. All these divine actions, it's not that some, a lot of people are foreknown and then only some of those are predestined. It's not the way the grammar reads. The sentence says, that to cite a you know, silly mathematical example, if five people are foreknown, how many people are predestined? Five. Five, five, and five. Five are foreknown, five are predestined, five are called, five are justified, and five are glorified. It's not like there's five foreknown, and four predestined, and three called, and two justified, and one glorified. The grammar doesn't permit that. All these actions are part of the same salvation package. So, when we start to discuss these, and the first discussion hangs on this verb foreknow, here's a question to think about. Based on the grammar of verse 29 and 30, is it proper or not to say that foreknowing is the same as omniscience? No, you're right. It's not right. Because omniscient, God knows all things. That's a label for a divine attribute. God knows all things. But foreknowing can't be a synonym of omniscience. Because he's saying here that those whom he foreknows, he justifies, and we know he doesn't justify everyone. Furthermore, this is only talking about people. It's not talking about dogs, cats, rocks, the planets. God, those are objects of his omniscience. But as far as Paul's using the verb foreknowing, those are not objects of his foreknowing. So foreknowing is not a synonym of omniscience. Foreknowing is something else, something more restricted than just God's omniscience. And it appears to be, from the sentence structure, that it is a knowledge in eternity past of the elect or the saved people. That in this case, because he says, he's got, we get into predestination and destiny in a moment. But right now, foreknowing, wrapped up in its very meaning, implies that God has already focused. He's already focused on a subset of the overall human race. Now, why he focused on that subset, that's the debate. Is it because some people would say, is it because in eternity past, he, he looked down the corridors of time, and I, I know, and I've used this illustration myself, and as I've got in, into the text, I realize that I shouldn't probably use this. Some, you'll hear some people say, foreknowing is God looking down the corridors of time and seeing if someone is going to believe or not. And those whom he sees that are going to believe, he foreknows. 
that sounds good, and, and, and many times people have a good motivation in using that. What they're trying to do is, is get the reality of choice in there. The problem with that is, if you turn to Matthew 11, it, it, runs into, it quickly runs into a buzzsaw when you get it looking at the text. Matthew 11:20. The Lord Jesus is reproaching certain Jewish cities who heard him and who rejected him. And he makes a stunning statement. In verse 20 he says, he began to reproach the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they would not repent. Now notice first of all, are these people ignorant? of revelation. No. Because verse 20 says they, they've, they've been faced with the revelation. I mean, here's the Lord himself, the living word of God, who has gone into these cities, shown his life, clearly. Are we going to say that, well, they really didn't see because it wasn't clear. Are we going to say that the Lord Jesus was so sloppy, ineffective, and confused in his lifestyle that he it wasn't a clear revelation surely not the Lord Jesus was a clear revelation the problem here is if somebody's complaining about they don't see the light and you just you know it's a bulb here and you can't see the light that's not an indictment of the bulb an indictment of your eyes and so he's rebuking these people because he had done the miracles, he had revealed himself, and they didn't repent, they didn't respond. So now he says, woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred... Now look at this. Look at this sentence. If the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented. Now let's stop and think about that one a little bit. If the revelation that had come in New Testament times to Chorazin and Bethsaida had come in the Old Testament to Tyre and Sidon, who, by the way, were the capital cities of what culture? Phoenicians. And you know who the Phoenicians historically are related to, genealogically? Canaanites. The Canaanites were a white degenerate race in Palestine and the Phoenicians were the were people that were akin they, their kin in fact they also went into another place in the Mediterranean which is very famous in world history it's a place called Carthage and it's very interesting everywhere this group went they spread this religious pollution all over the place and what Jesus is saying you know you Jews you're always historically you were against the Canaanites you thought you were so much better than they were let me tell you something Jesus says I walked around here and I've done miracles for you I've healed your sick I've told you the gospel I've given all the revelation that you could possibly want you Jews and if I had done the same thing back to those people who are related to the Canaanites Hamites they would have repented. That's what he's saying. I mean, there's, there's some awful, hard-hitting, stinging remarks to this. 
that are absolutely insulting to a Jew who knows his history, to be compared to Tyre and Sidon, the cities of debauchery, and Jesus, yeah, they would have repented had they been here. Now, what does this imply? This implies, it seems to me, that God controls the amount of revelation given to all men everywhere at all points in history. And to some men, he gives more revelation, and to some men, he gives less. Isn't he saying here in verse 21 that Chorazin and Bethsaida had more revelation than Tyre and Sidon? I think so. So if God gives a variable amount of revelation to different people in different times and different places, and he knows in advance, I mean, he's our creator, he knows, for example, in Tyre and Sidon, let's say, here are all of these flowers of the people in Tyre and Sidon. What the Lord Jesus is saying is, had these people received the revelation I just gave Chorazin to say that these people would have believed. Whoa. That means that God did not give sufficient revelation. I mean, they had sufficient revelation to be condemned because the issue was clear. All God's saying is, I could have made them repent if I give them more revelation, but I didn't do it. Not in my plan. So now who controls the shots? You see, that's the problem of saying God foresees responses. They're responses to a set of circumstances that God himself controls. So, the idea here is that Matthew 11, 21 and 22 give a problem. By the way, this, this is a text that's centuries old. I mean, it's centuries old because it's in the New Testament, but it's centuries old in the discussion of this. It's not something Charles Clough thought about last night when I figured how to do the notes. Um, this has been a subject of discussion going back prior to the, prior to the Reformation, Matthew 11. It's this passage. And the reformers thought long and hard about this because this was one of the passages that they had to, had to cope with. And so what we, what we want to do is come back then to the notes and look at this foreknowledge thing. And while we're going back to Romans 8, uh, hold that place and go to 1 Peter 1, 2. Because here the word foreknowledge occurs again. Verses 1 and 2 of 1 Peter. Look at the last clause of verse 1 and the first clause of verse 2 in this epistle. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens or foreigners scattered throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen. Notice passive voice again. They are chosen according to according to the foreknowledge of God. Now, that's another example of showing how the text, the New Testament text, tends when it describes the work of God and his calling and his purposes, it tends to use this word foreknowledge, however we define it, to be that which can be conceived as the first thing he does. He foreknows. 
And it's his choice because he has set up history this way. Maybe another example that might help us think through this. Let's say we, we forget about salvation for a minute. Let's talk just about Satan and the angels. Forget about man. God created Satan. We have to say that, right? When God chose to create Satan, did God know that Satan would fall? Sure he did. And he chose to create the other angels who would fall. He created angels who didn't fall. He chose to create the story. And that's why I say, I think, to me, one of the most helpful mental exercises to do to kind of get a handle on some of this is think of yourself if you were an author of a story. C.S. Lewis uses this. Think of it if you were the author of a story. When you write your story, would, the, would your characters that you write about, would they have character and choice? Would they respond? Would they do this? Sure they would. You would create them with choice because that's what those characters would do. And you'd create a story and a plot and maybe it's a suspense novel or something, whatever kind of story turns you on. But you're, you're writing your story. And you'd have this character and that character and this character and that character. And they'd be all genuine people interacting. But you're writing the story. They are doing what you want them to do because they're your characters in your story. Now that's the way to look upon history. This cosmos that we're in, we're his story. He's the author. He writes and he puts us into existence with choice. And we'll come to the choice thing in a little bit. But we're responsible. He judges us. So we have responsibility. But the whole thing, the whole thing, all the revelation here and the non-revelation here and the angels here and Satan here and man here and Jesus there, all that together is a story that he chose to write. And he was never, nobody twisted his arm and said, God, you've got to write the story that way. He chose freely to write the story. Now, we often don't like that because we're afraid that that makes God the author of sin. But it doesn't. If you don't hold the fact that God is the ultimate author, then you've got to do something else. If you do not hold that God is absolutely sovereign, then you've got to ascribe sovereignty to something else. And to what do you ascribe it? Chance? If God isn't sovereign over all, he cannot be sovereign at all. Because by definition, sovereignty is over all things. Now we can debate the linkages that go on here. And this is why when I went over in, in the fifth framework panel, when I tried to show <clears throat> what, why certain things we don't believe the reformers finished staying, saying correctly or saying clearly. And one of those things, remember we were talking about, we were talking about the atonement. And classical reform theology holds to a limited atonement. And we, we said, why? Well, they're concerned with not making the work of Christ go to waste. You know, we can appreciate why they say that. But the weakness is, is that there's texts in here, like 1 John 2.2, 2, that show that Jesus Christ is propitiation for the whole world. And it's very kind of artificial to kind of ram it and cram it and jam that text. <clears throat> so... <clears throat> we said back then, if you remember, that was years ago, two or three years ago, 
that one way of viewing this God as sovereign over good and evil is to look at it as a triangle. And God's sovereignty over the good <clears throat> is much more direct than God's sovereignty over evil. And we coined a term then, when we spoke of that, as God's sovereignty is asymmetrical. That is, that he's not sovereign over good in the same way he's sovereign over evil. Now, how to explain it? We don't know. All we know is that he is not the author of evil. Yet, he controls evil. He created the universe with an evil component in the story. It's his choice to do that. And people can say, and, and, and I want to chase a thought here too, because what I'm trying to do, I'm trying to show you that all of Christian theology hangs together. All these parts. And when you start working with one part, and you get it fixed on that one part, the relief that you should do is back off and go to some of the other parts and think this through. <clears throat> now let me show you how to do that as an example. We're talking here about God as sovereign, and he's sovereign over evil. And he created a universe deliberately, by an act, free act of his choice. He created a story that has an evil subplot in it. And we're saying, and we can have an image in our heads, and people have had this image in their heads when they've talked this way, that God is so powerful, he does this, in an unfeeling way, totally detached, way up at the higher echelons of the universe, and, and unsympathetic with the suffering and passion that is involved. How do we know that's an incorrect image of God? Because of the second person. Whatever evil God brings into existence in his story, who is it that gets stuck in the middle of it? He does. So, the Incarnation, this is why you see, we say, oh, well, gosh, why does Christianity have the Trinity and the Incarnation and all these hard things? Because that's the way God is. But they're there for a reason that protects all the other truths. See, when we say God deliberately created a story with evil in it, but he put himself at the center to experience that evil. See, he's not like Allah. Allah doesn't get dirt under his fingernails. The God of the Bible does. The God of post-biblical Judaism stays aloof. He doesn't get down here and down and dirty. But in Christianity, God does get down and dirty. And that's what the Incarnation is all about. So the Incarnation, by going from the sovereignty thing over to the Incarnation and back again, it sort of balances your soul a little bit here. It keeps this in perspective. That God is not doing this like he's totally detached and insulated, doesn't sweat it. No. He got right in the center of this thing. Now why did he do that? We don't know why he did that. We just know that he did it. And maybe someday he'll share on, gee, you know, I, I had five different stories I was thinking about, and I chose this one. Good for the publisher. So maybe, you know, maybe he had a reason. Maybe he'll share that with us. But right now, we have the words of Paul, of him, through him, and to him are all things. 
And in this passage, we're studying back to Romans 8. In this passage in Romans 8, he says, we are the call according to his purpose. Only one singular pronoun. And how he does that, we do not know all the details. We do know that we can make certain statements at the boundaries of this problem. We know he isn't responsible for evil. But why must we, while we're saying he's not responsible for evil, have to say that he's sovereign over evil? Because otherwise, evil is unleashed as an uncontrolled power over which we would never have victory. God has to be sovereign over evil. That's the good news of verse 28. That's why all things, all things work together for good. They wouldn't work together for good if God weren't sovereign over the whole story. Otherwise, the promise has absolutely no validity. It would be just a guess. He does the best he can do. And we have theolo- we even have some evangelicals now talking about open theology, where God doesn't really know the future. He sort of sits there and wonders what we're going to do. What a sorry God that is. Wanting to wait for you when he's going to take his cue from you and me? Hello? The God of the Scriptures doesn't take his cue from you, me, or anyone else. He is a self-contained God who would have been perfectly at home without even creating us to start with. So let's get perspective. He doesn't need us around. He has created history to go this way, and that's the way it is, period. Now, having said that, let's go and see if we can get some content to his work. We go back to these five nouns, foreknowledge, predestination, uh, calling, and justification. Foreknowing we can define not as omniscience, but as him, his focused knowledge upon those who in eternity will be the saved people, the body of the saved people. In particular, this is about the church here. I'm not talking about Israel. The context here is the church. Then we're talking about predestination. Now, in the previous verse, if you back up to verse 29, you get more of a flavor that hints at the content of predestination. Notice what it says. He predestinated to be conformed to the image of his Son. couple of comments. The word predestinate is not the same as the word foreknow. If it were, two different words wouldn't be used. Two different words are used because they mean two different things. Predestination emphasizes the future destiny, the, the fact that God has a plan. Now, Jesus Christ is the plan, by the way. Notice, predestinated to be conformed to the image of his Son. The word predestinate doesn't apply to those who reject Jesus Christ. Now, down through history, we've talked about some people, some extremes in the reform movement have talked about double predestination. Now, I know what, they've tried, what they're trying to say is God is sovereign over evil, like that chart I had about you know, asymmetry. But I prefer to deal with asymmetry, and I'll tell you why. Because I can't find any place in the scripture where the word predestinate is applied to the unsaved. doesn't apply. It's used with a certain flavor. And the flavor has to do with Jesus Christ. It's as though God says, I set forward a, a universe that I want conformed to my Son. 
that destiny, that plan, that design of the eternity future. That's what I mean when I say I predestinate. So that's why in a, verb, a verse like verse 29, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. The Lord Jesus. See, the Lord Jesus is the center of the predestination. It's not just individuals that are saved. The, the, the flavor of the word doesn't have that. The flavor of the word centers on Christ. Jesus Christ. That's why in Ephesians 1, in that great long passage of Paul, uh, it occurs that way. All right, let's go on then to the third action of the Father. He calls. Now, there's many different uses of the word call. But in Romans 8.29, clearly the usage of this call is the call to salvation. Because in foreknowing, he foreknows us before we're born. Jeremiah uses that too, by the way, foreknowing. He predestinates us in that he has a destiny in the person of the God-man Savior. Next, he calls. So that's the point in history when he calls us to believe. He calls us to decide for the gospel. And it is a decision. But he's calling us to that decision. It's not something we crank out ourselves. You want an example of this? Again, for the mind's eye, for the imagination, here's a good example to think about. Think about if you were there in the garden after the fall and you kind of looked under the bushes and there's Adam and Eve. Who spoke first? God or Adam and Eve? God did. So who called? Did Adam and Eve call for God? Or did God call for Adam and Eve? God called for Adam and Eve. So with whom then lies the initiative in calling people to salvation? God does. Now you can see this in your own life. Now, you know, we, in this class we don't have time for testimonies, but I'll bet you most of you the people in this room could think back to how you became a Christian. And I think you could narrate, if you had to write on a two or three page story about it, you could probably narrate events that happened in your life prior to the time you believed. And it wasn't just a flash of lightning that happened one day. It was a result of a sequence of things that were going on in your life led up to that point. And this is why, when it comes to evangelism, there's a practical application here for this. This is why, when the Word of God is taught, we have to be careful that in our zeal to win people to Jesus Christ, that we don't create peer pressures, we don't put out guilt trips, we don't manipulate trying to get decisions for Christ. Because when we do that, we get decisions all right. But are they the call of God? See, the calling has to be synchronized with the calling of God. And you talk to a hundred people, say an evangelist is sitting here, and he's talking to a hundred unsaved people. Is God working the same way in all those hundred people? Are all those hundred people at the same stage of calling? No. 
So why the pressure to, everybody come on down front? Well, maybe it's not time for everybody to come on down front. And so you've got Joe here, and it is Joe's time. This message cut to his heart, and he's clear to believe. He knows that's right. So Joe comes down. Let's just say we have a call. Joe comes down the front. Well, Joe came to the meeting with uh, Bob, his friend. Now, Bob's sitting there wondering, gee whiz, I look kind of unspiritual, because Joe went forward. So Bob comes forward. But it's not his time to believe, and he can't really believe. Because it's just his heart hasn't been opened yet. It may be. Maybe it's going to be next week or next month. But this is not the time for that. And that's the problem with, a lot, with, with mass evangelism sometimes. Now, I'm not knocking Billy Graham here. Billy Graham's a great evangelist. And, you know, any of us have live up to a tenth of our gifts the way he does. We'll be doing great. I'm just saying you have to be careful. And you not, have to not be discouraged when you may be sitting there witnessing to somebody and think, Oh, gosh, now, I've gone through the gospel with this person. What is the problem here? I mean, they can practically repeat the gospel back to me and they still don't believe it. That's right. Because no one can believe unless God calls. Now, he calls us to witness and put the message and the content out there. But there's a time when that's going to happen. And you know, that is true of kids in homes. Parents will grieve over kids. When is this guy going to believe? And, uh, you know, make my behavior pattern in this home a little bit better, God. Um, and, you know, you sit there as a parent, and you're helpless to do that. You do everything you can. But ultimately, it's not under your power. You can't make anyone believe. And no evangelist can, and no pastor can. All the manipulation in the world is just going to produce a religious movement, but it's not genuine conversion and born again. That's going to be God's call. And that's the warning here. This is a, a work. God causes this. He calls. And he may use the doggondest things to call people to salvation. Um, we, we could go into some odd things that people have been led to in the most irreligious, unreligious, totally separate stuff that God has because he's sovereign over all things. And, you know, every rule that you have for good evangelists has been violated one or another. And you can always cite a hundred people that have been led to the Lord in the screwiest ways. Chuck Colson in his book, um, The Body, gives the illustration of a famous Russian Christian woman poet. And... She became a Christian, sitting in a classroom in some Soviet city in the middle of a snowstorm. And she had nobody to witness to her. And she sat there as a young girl in that classroom. And, of course, the point was that the professors were all, in those days, Soviet, you know, the, the government school system. And they said, you can't knock faith, knock faith, keep them all atheists. And so they would always be against God and this and that. Of course, as a little girl, she went, hmm, they're all against God. Must be something to that. Um, you know, why are they all upset about God? And this is where evil always outdoes itself. It always overdoes itself. So it's kind of nice to watch the rebellious in the good direction. And so this little girl sitting there to herself wondering, what is the problem with this guy? And she looked out the window, and it was, it was snowing. Snowflakes were coming down. 
And God used the snowflakes coming out of that window to lead that girl to Christ. Because she, she saw the snowflakes and she realized, this guy's nuts, you know? My, my teacher's crazy. Every one of those snowflakes, she was a smart girl, she'd bred around. Every one of those snowflakes has a design to it. And the, the con, her gospel content, we wouldn't even recognize it. Now, how did the Holy Spirit win her to Christ? I mean, she didn't have the four laws. She didn't have a track. She didn't even have the New Testament to read. How did she become a Christian? I don't know. But, and it's not an excuse to be sloppy in gospel presentation. But you go down back through church history, there's thousands and millions of people who became Christians, and you wonder, how on earth did that ever happen? They didn't even have one-tenth the gospel knowledge that we have. God still led them to Christ. Not an excuse for being sloppy in evangelism. Just saying, though, when God wants to call someone to himself, he can do it. Okay, so we have God's calling. And that's the time when he brings all kinds of circumstances in. And it may be a process. And by the way, when, God, when Paul uses the word call, and he thinks of this, this particular call, do you suppose he had his own personal experience in mind? I'll bet you he did. I'll bet you when he used this word call, he thought of himself. And he thought, what a tyrant I was. I murdered people in the name of religion. And I was going along that Damascus road, and he called me. I wasn't looking. Was Paul looking for Jesus on the Damascus road? No, he wasn't looking for Jesus. Jesus was looking for him. And Jesus called him. Jesus initiated that conversation just like he initiated the conversation in the Garden of Eden. Okay, we come to the, four, the fourth one. Justification. We've gone over this a number of times, so we won't spend a lot of time here. Justification is God the Father decreeing us to be righteous with Christ's righteousness credited to our account. It is a once and for all thing, just like calling is it. It refers to something in time, not eternity. Foreknowing and predestinating are in eternity. Calling is in time. Justification is in time. And glorification is in time. And glorification, as I say, if you turn on page 83 of the notes, glorification uh, is, can be thought to include, you get this by a concordance study of glorify, when glorify occurs. Glorification here can include regeneration. It can also include resurrection. So you could say God you know, glorifies us at one point and he glorifies again in resurrection. But it, it has to do with the work that the Holy Spirit does. So this, this is another instance where when we drew the relationship of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the Father, uh, glorification is one of these works that explains all this work down here. When God made the decision to glorify us, that included all this work down here of the Holy Spirit. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all work together in this thing. Now on the notes on page 83, we we're running out of time tonight, and I want to finish. Down at the bottom of 83, we go to, and let's go to Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, we go to child raising. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 and 6. This is, the, this is the sixth work that God does, and that is 
he chastens. And it's a and it's a nasty word in the Hebrew. It's pretty strong. It's not just you know he yells at us or something. This means corporal punishment as well as other kinds of punishment. He chastens. It says, have you forgotten the exhortation that is addressed to you as sons? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5 and 6 is a citation. If you have a study Bible, look in the margin and you'll see where it comes from. You'll see it comes from Proverbs. Proverbs is full of instructions of parents and child rearing. And this is one of those passages directed at parents in the Old Testament. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved of him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. The analogy is with the Jewish dad and the Jewish son. So God does to believers. And this, this scourge means capital, corporal punishment here. Now, it's, I find this amazing in our day. Just think of it. God, what would God have done with the social workers? I mean, they would be in the house, they'd take the kids all out of the house. Because we have a group of women in charge of social work who couldn't get a master's degree in anything else, so they chose sociology, one of the easiest degrees to get, and wound up in this work of, of social work. And so now they invade people's homes and take away kids. I'm not saying that all of it's not justified. There are cases that, of course, where this is necessary. But what's happening today is because we have non-Christian fools who are in the legal area who define what is acceptable child-rearing. That's the problem. So now the mechanism that we have to protect children against abuse now gets turned against Christian parents. I know Christian parents who won't discipline their kid out in public because they're afraid there's a social worker around. And they're probably right. Do it at home, behind closed doors. And because some, some of these people, they're just looking for trouble. They probably are people who maladjusted and never got disciplined properly themselves. And so they resent any kind of authority. And it, it, this is endemic to sociology departments. If you go on a college campus, you know where all the queers are? They're in sociology and art and psychology. People with brains are over in the math department, uh, pre-med courses, or something that requires a little intellect. Yet these are the people that are going around our society telling us how to raise kids. And here's an example of it. This verse would be unacceptable in the eyes of these people. See what's wrong? They can't, they don't know child abuse if it came up and stared them in the face. Because abuse has to be defined in terms of an acceptable standard of behavior. You can't define abuse unless you have a standard to define it with. And if you don't have the standard, you can't define what abuse is. So here's an example of a standard. God's character is a standard and he scourges his sons. And why does he do that? He scourges us because we're fallen, miserable, Adamic creatures. I used to have a, a professor of church history and he was an old stubborn Yankee from Maine. And he'd get up there with his nasal talk and he'd say, you don't have to beat Adam out of him. And, and of course, I mean, he, he wasn't 
you know, talking about beating children, but he was just making a point that, that, that children come not as innocent people. See, this is the other misconception. Sociology today holds to what they call the tabula rosa view, uh, that you come with a blank slate, that's what that means. It's actually a doctrine of empiricism. And they hold that the kid in kindergarten and so on is, is a blank slate. He's, he's like open clay, can be manipulated both ways. In fact, the early people, you want to read this, the justification for all this is a great book called The Messianic Character of American Education by Russus John Rushtuni. And he has a chapter in there on all the people at the turn of the century that set up this framework of thinking. And he actually quotes one of them uh, to show you that these people knew what they were doing. They call, you know what the name for the kindergarten was when they first started it? The New Eden. Now that tells you about their theology. Now, Thirty brats in a room are not the New Eden. So the point is that God disciplines children and he sometimes does it very severely. And that is a work of the Father. And that's why when God says God disciplines kids, what he's doing here is he's activating the Holy Spirit. Remember what we said? The Holy Spirit down here is making intercession for us. When God says, I want chastening, it doesn't mean he enjoys chastening. He says that th these believers need to get shaped up. I mean, we're going to be living in my presence forever. I don't want brats around the new heavens and the new earth. So we've got to teach him something. And so this is the basis, this chastening is the basis of this thing going on down here with the Holy Spirit, that Romans 8 passage where the Holy Spirit's making intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. He's, he's seeing things that need to be changed. So, okay, time for change on this one. So these are the works of the Father. And uh, on page, uh, I believe page 84, I made an attempt, and it's a screwy attempt, but I made an attempt to give you an idea of how these are all interrelated. Um, each one is interrelated to the others. You can't really separate them. I've tried to separate them just for teaching purposes, but they're all part of the salvation package. They can't be separated out. Okay, the notes we passed out tonight starts a new chapter. We're going to move now from the church becoming its own thing to what's happened from Pentecost to 2002. What has the Holy Spirit been doing in church history? Why do we have 20 centuries going on? What's happening? So we want to go through that. Father, we thank you for our time tonight. We thank you that the Word of God is sufficient to every good work. We thank you for the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. We thank you that you have provided for salvation, that you have provided a perfect package that is not dependent on human works in any way, shape, or form that therefore it's perfect and therefore we can trust it moment by moment for we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.
question is, is that sort of a calling or is that just like a nudging? Or is the calling is like, hey, it's now in time? Because eventually you get to the point like, you know, it's up to pitch, blender, some kind of time, it's time to wait for the heck up. So to me, what is in calling, is that is a calling sort of like a, a this an ongoing thing and to eventually if you keep ignoring it, it may not ever happen again. And, you know, and of course, you know, we lead up to you know to the end times when the Holy Spirit then goes up to the church, then it won't be anybody that really calls Yeah, that's a good question, Dave. Um, question is, is calling a point, a, a one point thing, or is it a cluster of different things? I think you have to argue it's a cluster of, of different things because um, the. I think in terms, to keep it simple, just think in terms of Paul's life. And here's the guy that authored that text we just looked at. So what you try to do when you get into some pretty hairy stuff, and Paul's known for this, um, I find it useful to look for, you look first at the context of, of the verse, what he's talking about, and then you expand over to his other writings before you go visit John or Matthew or Luke. You, you look at the rest of Paul's writings. This is kind of expanded context. And one of the things that sometimes is not taught too well in Bible study is that you also want to go not just to the, con the context of his writings, which, is, which you will, do want to do, but you also want to go to the context of his personal life, as far as we know that personal life from the scripture. Now, in Paul's case, the way Luke wrote Acts, because Luke was Paul's traveling companion, tells you that Luke is telling us things about Paul. A neat place where this happens is, remember that passage we went on with Stephen? It's the speech of Stephen where Stephen got killed. Notice how that chapter ended? And it said... And Stephen's clothes were tossed at the feet of Saul. So that little act occurred weeks before the Damascus Road. It wasn't, the Damascus Road thing was over here, this was over here. But you can kind of tell from the way Luke puts it together that Holy Spirit was drawing him. The Holy Spirit was drawing him through these different things. And I'll bet you that if we had Paul here and interviewed him, uh, you know, we don't expect Larry King to be doing it. But um, if Paul were here, then he would probably tell us about his the guilt he might have felt after he, he murdered Christians. He must have encountered, think of it, when he imprisoned Christians, he must have encountered godly people. And it must have haunted him that as he persecuted these people, there was something in their lives that attracted him. And he saw it. And, and, and Stephen, of course, is one of the examples. But there were others. There's dozens, if not hundreds, of people that Paul must have come in contact with. And so, even though he might not have come in contact with Jesus personally or known of him, uh, Paul had enough contact with enough little points of that calling. So I think we have to say, yeah, calling is a cluster. It's the whole set of things. Probably you could argue that you know, it goes all the way back to your birth, and then all the way back to how your parents, I mean, you know, this is God's sovereignty. And how he molded your parents so you had 
you had a mom and a dad with this particular character and these particular faults and so on, and that worked together for this way, and that set you up to in this direction. I mean, you can just keep on going, 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 uh, because God is so sovereign. Well, I guess that's his predestiny. You could say, well, the Holy Spirit's willing, he's just not paying attention, or I won't spend as much time on him, or more time on him. I guess it's predestined, whatever. Well, that's a good, another good question. Dave, Dave is asking about, well, what about the calling and the response to the calling? And here is where, here is where you have to keep your categories uh, clear. If God, when God is calling someone, and I'm going to use the verb calling in a broader sense than what we saw here tonight. Tonight, we use the verb call there. He's there talking about the calling that results in salvation. Okay? So that's one kind of call. I mean, there's other kinds of call. We have, like, the call to... to uh, um, and this is a point of history, just a side note, but how our vocabulary is called, we don't even know it. Uh, how often have you heard the word vocation? You know, somebody's a vocation is a, a, a craftsman, or it may be a designer, maybe an engineer, we talk about a vocation. Do you ever think of where the word came from? Know a little bit about Latin? You know what the root of that word vocation is? Voca, vocari, calling. And you know where that came from? Christian theology. And you know when that came about? It was in the Protestant Reformation. And you know why it came about? Because in the Protestant Reformation, the discovery was that God called people to not just the priesthood. He called people not just to the monastery, but he called people into the crafts. He called people to be students. If all of a sudden people realize, wait a minute, I can follow the Lord in all kinds of professions. And my calling over here is just as legitimate as the call to be a priest over there. Okay, end of that diversion. There I'm talking about calling in the sense of calling to a, what we call a secular skill or, or your life's career. Now there's an example of calling. Is it divine? Yeah, I think it is. I think God invests people. I mean, think about the gifts He's given the artists and the musicians. I mean, think of this great, the, where these guys get their music from. You know? So that's calling. That's calling. But now, what Dave's asking about is okay, here's Mr. Mr. X. Mr. X going down through history. And there impinges upon Mr. X these situations that occur that precipitate him to think, hmm, um, yeah, I'm responsible to God. Um, I'm eternally responsible to God. And, gee, I have a destiny. I better check out things and make sure everything's cool <laughs> to go. Or, you know, I don't know. If I trust God with my life, he might do things in my life you know, make, if he's a single guy, we used to laugh and when I was in the campus crusade and on the college campus. The joke was, was that if you, t and the, the, 
we were joking about how you get all these other thoughts in your head if you trust the Lord with your life. And these guys were saying, yeah, if I trust God my life, he'll make me go to Africa and marry Mrs. Ugly. Um, so, but, you know, because, but it, it's, it's a funny, but it's a fear that if you really trust the Lord, uh, you know, you're letting, giving him permission to do things. You don't really trust him to do that. So, so that's calling. And that's the kind of psychology that goes along with that. Oftentimes, it's fearing to, to, to let him have his way. Uh, that, so the problem then becomes, if we don't know Mr. X's final destiny. See, that's the problem. So we're not up here on the level the Creator is, so we can't tell if everything's going to turn out all right or not. Because it's possible, as Jesus said in his use of another meaning for the call, he said, many are called, but few are chosen. Now there he's using the word call different from choice. And there he's talking about many people are called but few are chosen. And what he means there, he was referring to this generation of idiots that were, he's talking about in Chorazin and Bethsaida. And he, he was basically saying, you know, I've reached, Chorazin and Bethsaida is an example tonight. There was a calling, but not to salvation in the sense because they didn't respond. And so God called, and, and no, nothing happened. And God got mad. Jesus is God. And God's saying, what is the problem here? And that shows you something about God. He's not this cold, calculating supercomputer of hyper-Calvinism that just kind of puts everybody down. I mean, Jesus is emotionally involved with these people, and he's angry that after everything he's done for them, they don't respond to him. Now, how you can picture God, who is sovereign over all and omnipotent, getting mad at at his own choices in the story. But that's, that's these all plays in the role in this, in this thing. It's like Francis Schaeffer used to say, when you find Jesus crying outside the tomb of Lazarus, the, Schaeffer says the only thing you can say is, Jesus could get angry at death without getting angry at himself. And I think that's a very succinct statement. Jesus can get angry at the results of sin without getting angry at himself for choosing history to include that. And how that fits, I don't know. But to get back to Dave's question that he's raised here, yes, it is possible for people to have been called and they turn away. And there's numerous biblical examples of that. Saul is one of them, King Saul. When God gave him everything, he gave him a dynasty. But Saul was one of these kind of guys who, when it finally came down to crunch time, it was more important for Saul about what other people thought about him than what God thought about him. I had a debate, not a debate, but my son sent me something at work today about some guys were talking about the Witch of Endor and whether the Saul, Samuel appeared in the Witch of Endor, you know, in the seance, and whether that was a real... Saw Samuel, or whether that was a demon impersonating Samuel. To make a long story short, we were discussing Saul. And it made me reread 1 Samuel 28. And in the first part of 1 Samuel 28, it says very explicitly Saul had destroyed all the witches and all the mediums from the, from the, the culture of Israel. He had all gone. So this witch of Endor, she's the only one left. And 
But it says that he did that for the, for the community's sake. So, you see, Paul, it looked like if you and I were there, boy, this guy's this is great. You know, he's doing some, he's cleaning up around here. And yet, in his personal life, when it came crunch time uh, about, gee, what am I going to do with this battle of Philistines that come in here? <clears throat> I think I got one more saved over here that I can go check. <clears throat> because he got mad that God wasn't talking to him anymore. Interesting, in 1 Samuel 28. Saul so said, you know, I can go to the priest, and they don't, you know, God doesn't speak to the priest to me anymore. Okay, God, you're not going to talk to me, I'm going to go get my private little witch, and she'll tell me what's going on. So that's what he did. And so in that case, Saul had light, he had more light, he had more light, he had more light, and geez, Saul, you know, don't you hear the bells? What's the matter? And he didn't, and so God, okay, it's all fine with you. You had your turn. Next, please. So yeah, Dave, that can happen. But for those in the story whom God has foreknown, according to this passage, somehow the call will be successful. Yet, yet not so as to destroy any choice. I mean, God doesn't reach down and destroy our choice chooser. But he enables it. As Luther, Luther had a way of putting this. Luther said, I forget the exact way he quoted it, but Luther said that God creates every one of us with the capacity to choose him. But it lies dormant until the Holy Spirit calls it. It's like it's a receiver. It's, it's, it's there, but it has to be hit with a signal. And that's the Holy Spirit calling but, um, Mike, tell the people how that the text that your dad and father-in-law was preaching when you, you, you became a Christian. Um, of all the unevangelistic texts. Now, would you pick out, if you were an evangelist, would you pick out Exodus for your evangelistic text? I don't think so. But God used that. He used the snowflake for the Russian poet. He used the Exodus for Mike back there. See? There's a, a thousand ways he does this. Yes? Here's the real twist. This morning, my three-year-old, Amos, prayed during our family Bible time. And he said, Dear Lord, Please have Amos, Amelia, and Ashley, which are the youngest ones, ask Jesus into their heart. In Jesus' name, amen. So he's praying for himself, like in a second or third person. Oh, isn't that he's interesting? That's the strangest question That is so cool. He prayed for himself, apart from himself, for his salvation. Isn't that so? Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's fascinating. And that's one of the, I guess, the fascinating thing about parenting. 
there are some unfascinating things about it, but the, the, the fascinating thing about it is, is watching the Lord work with your kids and, um, and seeing how, they, how he does the strangest things in the most unpredictable ways. So, uh, we had another question. Wasn't there another hand raised somewhere? Um, okay, well, next week we'll start with church history. Okay?